Welcome to the Jeff Knows Inc. Entrepreneurial Podcast with your host, Jeff Lopes. Jeff has over two decades' experience as a serial entrepreneur, building brands like KimuraWare from his home basement to a multi-million dollar global brand that has sold over a quarter million pairs of boxing gloves. Jeff's here to educate, guide, and drive you on the process of bringing your ideas and dreams to reality with the inspiring stories from some of the top business minds. Welcome to episode 154 of the Jeff Nosing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lopes. Super, super excited to have on today, Darish Sudi. What a great conversation. So many layers, incredible entrepreneur, incredible stories. Sit back, everyone, and enjoy we are live. We are live on the Jeff Nozine Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lowe. Super, super excited. Tons of layers here. Darius Sudi. What is up, brother? Amazing, Jeff, and thank you for the invite. I've been looking forward all week to this. So this is this is gonna be last fun today. hour of the last day of the week in Dubai. And uh I'm gonna finish on a high. Look let's, forward to it. Let's thank talk you. about that. For people from North America, you just told me something I had no clue about. In Dubai, your work days are Sunday to Thursday. Let's talk about that quickly. Let's get, let everybody know well, about we can that. Can see it because Saturdays and Sundays is based on the Christian Christianity. So you go to church on a Sunday. Here is, is Islamic world. So it's a Thursday and a Friday. So people go to the mosque on a Friday. Yeah. So our weeks here end, sorry, weeks here end on a Thursday and we have Fridays and Saturdays off. We're back at work on a Sunday morning. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so today being Thursday, it's our last day of the week. There's so many layers of you and... I just want to start off by just where you where were you born? How was your childhood growing up? I know you lost your dad at a very young age, and mm-hmm. I, I, I so I picked a little couple little things I've learned about you going throw in there. But let's start off with where you're born and, and, and give me your journey as a child, and and let's start sure. that process. Uh, thank you. Uh, born in 1966 makes me 55. Uh, born on 18th of April, which is the day your you and your son ran a marathon. So yeah, and my son's birthday uh, is the 19th. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Is he in Aries? Is he still in Aries? Because I'm yeah. on the crust of being in Aries. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd love to know more about him as well. So, um, born in Iran, um, medium uh, class family, nothing spectacular. My uh, father was an entrepreneur. He goes on a trip. I'm age three and a half. He has a major heart attack, age 29. On this trip, never comes back. Uh, for about a year, my family didn't tell me that he died. So I would go outside the house every day waiting for my dad to come home. And, you know, one thing I say, always tell your kids everything. Okay. Because when I found out a year later, I was just so disappointed in my family and, and adults that they can lie to you for so long, Yeah, you know, and they, they felt I didn't have the capacity as a child to handle the news so they just hid it from me and lied to me for a year. And I think that even today has, has tainted me, you know, and you think, you know, even your family can lie to you. They can hide things to you. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a painful process. But then uh, my grandfather fought for our custody with my mom because my mom was only 23. She was a widow at 23. And um, she fought hard. I was a witness of that uh, battle. Uh, he won because in the, those days in the Islamic world, the father of the, father gets the kids and uh, took three of us, myself, my sister and my mom under, under his wing. And then two and a half years later, he's with us and he has a, 
um, some cough, goes to have a shower, comes back and dies in front of us of a heart attack. So by the age of seven, I saw two male prominent figures in my life die. And um, it made me realize that how short life is because they're both young. My granddad was only like 55 or something my age. And uh, he was a mayor of a city, very successful, um, very successful guy, prominent figure. And he just died. So my mom's life was turned on his head in Iran. And um, in 1979, we came to the UK, just came to learn to speak English. And then the revolution started. And because we were pro regime and not the new guys, uh, we just decided to stay. So it became the longest holiday of our lives. I, 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 I want to dive into two things you said there. Sure. And it's something I heard you say in the past too, is, is living with no regrets. And this is something I teach people on a regular basis, live with no regrets. Mm-hmm. I just recently, in a week, it's going to be six months. I lost my father. Uh, he was 76. So he did a live a good life, but it was the same thing. Even 67 is young. Even 67 is young. hundred percent. And he yeah. was, um, I'm, I'm the 44 year old that would talk to my dad three times a day. We would call on the way to work. I would call him before I went to bed every night. I had an incredible relationship with him. He was my best friend and never smoked, never drank, power walked every day. I talked to him on April. Uh, sorry. Um, I talked to him on uh, May 6th and uh, 1030 at night, say goodnight. I got a call May 7th, six in the morning. He dropped in front of my mom's arms and died in front of her. And, and my life just turned upside down. And, and, I was able to spend all these years with my dad. I did a lot with my dad. I was always with him. We talked every day. So I have these incredible memories. So listening to you, not being able to have those, it's, it's just so touching. And it's so, it's so close to home. And, I, and man, it's, um, I just want to say that. I mean, living with no regrets is, is so important for people to understand because it's, man, that's, that's the one thing we could control when we're still here, live in the presence, do what you can every single day. So I love that. So from the UK, let's, let's start your journey. Uh, let's continue there from the UK. So how long did you live in the UK for? If I may go back a little bit. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you wonder if you're cursed or you're blessed because we all lose our parents sometimes yeah. the way, because I'm so positive with everything. Um, I realized what's the blessing out of this. And the blessing is that I treat every day. I, I started counting. Age of seven, I was like, okay, would I live by the age of 30? Would I live by the age of 40? So I started counting days. I was aware there was like 50,000 days to the day I die. Or, and then I made sure that every day was precious. Yeah. Because I think most people live life like they're going to live forever. And they're going to have regrets when the time comes looking back at their lives. So in a way, I tried to turn the positive into it. And I thought, you know what? At least I'm blessed to appreciate every day as it comes. I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's a great lesson there. So let's let's talk about you in in, in the UK. How long did you live in the UK for? Uh, 32, three very long and miserable years. Um, (laughs) Why would would you say that? Because um, I, we lived in London for about six months, and London is very cosmopolitan. Yeah. And it was 1978, 79, we moved to Manchester. My uncle was the, I'm sure you've heard of AstraZeneca. Oh. My uncle was the CEO of AstraZeneca for the Middle East, and wow. their head office was in Manchester. So we moved there, and um, I remember landing, and it was raining. And I was like, oh, my God, look at this beautiful, tiny raindrops. Man, it rained for 35 years. <laughs> Yeah. 
It didn't stop raining, right? And then I, I was just miserable. I went to school. I was the only foreign kid. I didn't speak English. I got shit out, kicked out of me. Uh, I didn't quit. I didn't want to tell my mom because I felt she was miserable enough and she had a tough life. So I just took a beating. Uh, I thought, you know what? I learned martial arts. I, beca- I became a prefect, a head boy. I still had my ass kicked. I, I tried to learn to speak English without an accent because yeah. even like, even now I meet people who are from my country and they have a strong accent and I made sure I didn't have an accent so I could fit in the, the society. Yeah. Um, made no difference because I realized prejudice is prejudice. You can't, yeah. Yeah. you can't change that. But on the only way you can do it is by educating others, right? Yeah. So um, it was a tough childhood. My mom was very negative because she had a tough life. Everything, pessimist, everything's going to turn out for the worst. Be careful, don't do this, don't do that, it's dangerous. She didn't want to lose me. But all along, I had this desire to be positive, this desire to, I realized even then that I'm dyslexic, that education wasn't for me. Yeah. You know, I couldn't sit still and listen to somebody that I didn't respect and stand in line and speak when you're spoken to and agree with things that you don't agree with. I just want to get to become 18 and leave, you know? Um, so, and then I realized only about four or five years ago, that I always thought maybe my dad's DNA was positive, maybe because he was an entrepreneur, maybe no matter how much negativity and shit I felt faced in my life, I had this desire to be an optimist, a positive, and everything was rosy despite everything was falling apart. Then I actually realized I was on a Tony Robbins seminar in Tenerife, and I was listening to him talking, and I thought, oh, my God, my mom has been my inspiration because I never wanted to be like her. Because I, I didn't want to have a miserable life. I didn't want to be a pessimist. I didn't want to, because I couldn't bear being with her because she just tr- triggered everything that I, I hated about being miserable. And I just want to be a positive guy and happy. Then I realized that she was my inspiration. So while I was in Tenerife, I picked the phone up and said, mom, what are you doing at Christmas? And she lives in the UK. Yeah. There was nothing. I said, right, the ticket's on its way. You're flying over. And for the last so many years, we've been inseparable. I love it. I suddenly recognized that all those trigger points were my inspiration points. I love that. So, love um, that. yeah. It's, it's so crazy that your environment, I actually had, um, I had a guest on and uh, uh, it's from the UK, Rob Moore. Have you heard of him? No. And, uh, and a successful entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur from the UK. And we had a long conversation. And one of the um, aspects we were talking about is, is are you born an entrepreneur? That, that million dollar question. Are you born an entrepreneur? Are are you create an entrepreneur? I, I'm the strong believer that you can teach somebody the tools, you can give them all the education you need, but you can't teach the hustle, that drive, that inner push, right? And and he and he brought it up that entrepreneurs are taught, and a lot of times those taughts are from your childhood triggers. So he said to me, he goes, your environment, and he brought something up to me. He goes, your parents were low-income, hardworking factory workers. He goes, that environment subconsciously triggered you not to want to be like that and push you into. So he was he brought it to a different angle, which is something you said. Your, your, your childhood could have brought up these triggers that essentially created a path to who you are right now, which I love that. And it's, you brought that up right now too. And if you imagine, I've seen my father and grandfather die in front of me yeah. and I'm being abused by these losers. And I'm thinking, this is not, I'm not going to quit because there's more to life than this, yeah. you know, and I'm going to show you. And all my life, 
there's two things. My mom always said, you're not good enough, right? There's somebody better than you. They're more attractive. They're more, got more money. They're this and that. And it was out of my control. Okay. So deep down inside, I was like, I'm going to show you. It's just a matter of time. I'll show you. I'll show you. But it wasn't very pleasant. It was like, I show you MF. Yes. Yeah. And then it came, I show you, I love you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was that anger inside of proving that I was good enough. That drove me. Now, here's the thing. I think everything's to do with your internal dialogue. It's it's to the way we talk to ourselves. Okay? We either talk defeatist or we talk opportunity. Uh, And I think the most powerful, the powerful, most powerful English word is why. Yes? Why has he got what I haven't got? Why is this like this? Why do we have to accept the status quo? Why do we have to do this? And if you ask the right questions, the right answers will come. Okay, so even now when my staff come to me and I say, this is why do you choose that option? Tell me more. Why, why that, you know, decision? Uh, so I think instead of just accepting, I used to go on a plane and say, why am I not turning left? You know, why am I going to coach? How can I do this? Why are they rich and I'm not? Why? Instead of saying, I accept being poor. Yes. I just didn't accept it. I just like, why not? Why not me? Yeah. Why not? And I think that's, an, an inc- I think that's an incredible skill too, is, is, is teaching our children um, how to ask questions. I think that's a, a skill. A lot of people don't realize there's a few skills that I think as a parent, um, you look at your children now that as an entrepreneur, I, 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 I wish people taught me when I was a kid is, is sales, public speaking, communication or networking and asking proper questions. Those four skills, if they were taught to every children, we're going to have the next level of, of, of leaders, those simple four skills. They're not taught in our educational system. I'm looking at my daughter. She started, she's in high school, brilliant, finished grade nine high school. She's on a roll, incredible dance star, like athlete. And and she brings home her homework. And I'm looking at her. I'm like, you're not going to utilize 90% of this in the real world. And I'm like, this is complete waste. So I I love that you're saying that. So what is your, when was your first, mine was 17, my first business started. When was your first dive as being an entrepreneur? Okay. Um, Being dyslexic, the moment school finished, I left. I didn't go to college. I didn't go to university, nothing. And I thought, you know what? I want to have the, I want to have the Ferraris. I want this, I want that. Um, The only trait I know, the only business I know that can earn you that kind of money is sales. Because if you can sell, you can earn money. And people used to say to me at the time that you make a great salesman because I was a good talker. Now I see that as an insult because great salespeople are great listeners. Yeah. So yeah. I think going back again to what you were mentioning about school is that one thing we have to add is emotional intelligence. Yeah. It's so powerful. And emotional intelligence comes from asking questions because people think emotional intelligence is about miles under your tire, you know, have years of living and existing and experiencing. But you know what? If your aerial is open to find out more about people by asking really good questions, one, you can build strong relationships because you care about others. Yeah. And then once you walk in, their, walk in their feet by asking great questions, you get that emotional intelligence. And I think most people come out of university with zero emotional intelligence or common I, I, sense. I agree with that. 
because common sense is not common these days. No, no, not at all. You know, so I all. totally agree with you. I totally agree with you about the asking questions part. And it builds bonds because the first rule of sales is people have got to like and trust you. Yeah. And how do you build like and trust? By well, asking great questions. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we, we also live in a society of entitlement where parents oh. don't teach their children as an, as an, I have a whole bunch of employees and, and it's, you see that entitlement where people come to a job and it's like, Oh, thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity. It's like, Oh, be happy that I'm here. It's a different mindset. And I think a lot of this has to do with parenting, growing up, how you're teaching your children, because a lot of parents don't put their children in a situation to learn basic skills. And if you go to my posts, my kids, 13, 15, they cook, they clean, they do laundry. I make them in the summer, come work for me. Like I learn, I teach them basic life skills yes. that they're able to do stuff on their own from a very young age. And I think a lot of parents, baby, 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 put their boy or daughter through university or college because they want them to get this diploma and then they get in the real world and they're just lost and they're so used to mommy and daddy so backing right. them up so so from the sales how did that where did that journey continue so i noticed that uh, i wasn't particularly intelligent not particularly good looking not, not much going for me but the only thing i had going for me is my work ethics so i realized that if i work hard enough and I worked hard through the times where all my competitors are in the pub or relaxing, I got more of a chance of succeeding. So on a Friday evening, uh, I live in Manchester, I'm door knocking at six in the evening in London. And my bosses at the time couldn't believe it because all my colleagues were in the pub in Manchester. I I was married with kids and I was getting home at 3 a.m. But I had all my sales because all the shopkeepers were locking up and I could catch them when I was door knocking. Uh, I noticed when it rained, I was most successful because people saw commitment in my eyes. So I turned up, I had hair at the time and the hair was down and the glasses were water and my suit was, you know, shoulder pads were soaking down. That's the time I got invited in for a coffee. Because yeah. I thought, wow, this guy is certain about it. this. This guy wants it, you know? And so I thought the right word. Do you mind me asking what you're selling? Yeah, everything. Everything. What didn't I? The question is, what didn't you sell? Uh, from photocopiers to Kirby vacuum cleaners, I sold everything. Everything. Mobile phones when they were like pure, suitcases. Pure hustle, huh? Absolutely. I Absolutely. You know, I remember going, uh, I was selling Kirby vacuum cleaners to a rich uh, neighborhood. Yeah. And then the month I started, uh, they said, oh, no, we're going to change. We're going to do finance in this other neighborhood. And I've never been to that neighborhood before. And I was chased by drug dealers. I had knives, knives threatened by knife down the road by, by prostitutes. <laughs> I had it all. But I'd f- sell Kirby vacuum cleaners on finance. Can you believe it? 
So it didn't take me long before I left that job. But what was interesting about that job was that in some households, you get a sign saying, no salesman. Yeah. Okay. And I used to be so respectful. I used to avoid it. And my manager sat down and said, you know why they have those door, door signs? I said, no, because they say yes to everyone. Interesting. So they have those signs to avoid you knocking on the door because they'll buy. So I was most successful selling to those who said no salesman because they were weak. Yeah. They used that sign to put the hustlers off. They put them off because they, was, they lacked certainty. And I realized if you're certain and work with people who are not as certain as you are, you will win. Love it. I love it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so where did your where did your journey continue? So you you lived in the U.S. I mean, you lived in Canada. You were saying you're, I, I, you're, tried to, I lived in Australia for six months. At, um, age twenty two, twenty three. My uncle uh, had a Persian carpet store, and my mom wanted me to have a career, and she sent me to Australia. I had some savings. Yeah, went to Australia, and um, Australia is a strange place. Beautiful place, yeah. big country. Yeah, but then they were like. They were, they were really colonial mentality, even Sydney. And he had a shop in yeah. a place called Wollongong, which is about an hour and a half drive from Sydney. Yeah. And these guys, he had a Persian carpet store. And I'm 22, 23, working there. I brought some money, gave him the cash. And then imagine this. We're selling, they, they got this thing called lay-by. Lay-by means, if I, and there were lots of Polish workers there at the time. That was we're going back 30-odd years ago. Yeah. And... I walk in and I sell a carpet and the woman says, I can't afford to pay it. But what I will do, I'll give you a hundred dollars and a hundred dollars a month for the next 24 months. Keep it in lay-by. So we'll take this carpet off stock and put it in the back yeah, they for call, 24 they, they months. Had, they had that here. I haven't heard it for a while, but they used to have it here at the department stores. They would call it layaway. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. It's called lay, lay-by in, in Australia. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, they, had, they used to have that here at actually big department stores. When I was a kid, I remember mm -hmm. you'd go to the store and you'd pick something that you wanted to get the sale price, whatever, and they would save it for you and you'd pay it off for six months. And then when you paid off, you get it. They would have that here. I mean, they haven't seen that in so long. But as a kid, I remember yeah. that in the big department stores too. Yes, yeah, crazy. interesting. Yeah. Well, we went to a big department store. Yeah. We were, you know, a couple of shop family owned Persian carpets. So I was selling. And after three months, we run out of stock. And all our stock was in the back because we had no cash flow. So I just said, uncle, this is not going to work. So I spent two months on Bondi Beach catching a tan, flew back, flew back. And I thought that was, that was a waste of time. And then um, I, was, I started a computer business because I felt PCs were the way to go. And at the time, uh, being a salesman, I did very well. This is before Dell times. And, and we did really good. Uh, Dell came into the UK and I thought, this guy's got no chance. <laughs> Go figure that he out. Was, what's this? He's selling online. What the hell is that? Yeah. And then obviously Dell became who they are. Um, but what was interesting, I'll give you my experience with the computer company. We used to have a high returns rate. Yeah. Okay. I didn't like it because we sold 100 computers. 30 of them came back within six months with folds. And in the shower, I decided I was going to incentivize my engineers so we have less of a return rate. So I called them all in and I said, right, guys, I'm going to give you, I can't remember the time, $15, $10 for every computer that doesn't break down in six months. Six months went by, my return rates were higher than ever. Why do you think that is? 
they they embraced it. They loved it. They said, freaking amazing. But my return rate was higher than ever. Were they trying to push out more computers? Nope. No. What was the reason? Because you know what? When an engineer starts, they're not money-driven. So if one computer works, they gain a bonus for nothing. Yeah. So they got more lazy because I didn't penalize them for computers that broke down. Interesting. I just gave them the carrot, but I didn't yeah. give them the stick. Yeah. So what yeah. I should have said was, I give you $15 for every computer that doesn't break down, but I penalize you 30 for everyone that does. Yeah, interesting. That was one heck of a... So I'm going to try to share my stories with the lessons I learned, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, yeah. And that's why I think people like my, my education because everything's hooked to my own personal experience. Yeah. And people remember stories. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a definitely human connection to that also. I love that. So... What was your next step? This has been this has been then, a lot of layers. From the from, you went from can, Australia. Where'd you go from there? You went back home. Yeah, I went actually. You know what? When I went to Canada when I was wealthy, and I'll tell you how I got there. I, I uh, met my first wife, and she had a beauty salon business, and uh, she had a small beauty salon above a post office. And um, I thought she was really professional. She was self-starter, successful. And, 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 where, and where was this? Manchester. Manchester. Okay. Manchester. Yeah. Everything's Manchester. Okay. I'll let you know. And then um, I, I went to one of the exhibitions, the beauty exhibition, and coming from the computer world, I said to the woman on, at the stand, I said, what's your, your unique selling proposition? She looked at me like I was talking Mandarin. <laughs> and she goes, well, the box is nice and it smells good. I was like, is that it? She goes, yeah. And I said, hang on, there's an opportunity in this industry. So we went to the States and we imported some uh, peels, TCA peels and yeah, yeah, yeah. alpha hydroxy acid peels and stuff. And it did really well. At the same time, I saw an opportunity to have a health clubs outside town because at the time, everything in England is small. And it's like you know, the, the beauty salon was above a post office and uh, it, we had limited growth and stuff. So I, just, I said to, the, to my first wife, I said, why don't we open up a health club outside town? And she said, no, it's not going to work. So I invested. I opened the club. And in the first year, we had 30,000 people go through our turn turnstiles. Well, I lost a fortune. Um, but it gave her the opportunity to see that she could run a successful business. Because she was a farmer and I'm a hunter. Yeah. So she decided to shut her beauty business and join the health club business. And our business took off. It took off. We multiplied. We ran it for 17 years. We made fortune and things were going pretty good financially. Yeah. Uh, we had two beautiful children. Um, so everything was going really good. And then we, we decided, we got into personal development. We re realized that we both passionate people, but our passion ran out because we became more friends than passion, passionate lovers. Yeah. And, you know, we were scheduling, making love sessions three weeks and nine o'clock on a Wednesday. It was just ridiculous, right? Yeah. And the passion went out. So we decided to go our own separate ways. And she's still a very good friend of mine. And we speak yeah. on a regular basis. Good, so good, we drove good. to the divorce court together. The judgment, where's the other party? So we're it. Yeah. He goes, what, you came in the same car? I said, yeah, we just grown apart. And then she met someone in Dubai. And uh, I decided to look after my kids. I said to her, listen, you were so hard. She had it tough because when she was, um, I was just given birth to a second child. A competitor open around the corner funded by her best friend and she had to go back to work i said you know what you worked your socks off and uh, just go and enjoy yourself in dubai i'll look after the kids and um 
at the same time, I was on a TV program called uh, That's Rich, which is a fly on the wall documentary. I was successful, wealthy guy and all that business. And so the cameras were following me to Spain in my properties, uh, follow me to a showroom where I buy a Ferrari cash and all this business, right? And I thought, you know what? It's a great way to meet someone, <laughs> okay? Market myself. Yeah. And then um, I met my second wife. Not just, It was just coincidence. She was my next door neighbor. Um, and we had a beautiful son together. But then being on that program made me a target, okay? So one day, um, my second wife and my child were in Spain, and I was with my older children. There was a knock on the door, and um, I shouted them. Somebody opened the door. It was like 9 o'clock in the evening. And they, they were on their music or iPad or Xbox and all this. So I walked down the stairs, put in my pants on, opened the door, four men break into the, to the house at knife point. And one guy's got this massive knife to my neck, and he's saying, let me cut him, let me cut him. He was like a psych, psycho guy. Let me cut his throat, let me cut his throat. And... I don't know if they were acting or whatever. And this big guy comes and says, we want 250,000 pounds, $300,000 from you. We know where you work. We know everything about you. And um, otherwise we'll kill you and your kids. And all I remember, Jeff, was I was pinned against the wall, knife to my neck, and I could hear my daughter on the other side of the door. And all I could think was, don't open the fucking door. Don't open the door because this will scar you. You know, yeah. I wasn't thinking about I'm going to die or anything like no, this. It was just course. like, I just don't open the door. And I could hear her singing. And so I, being a salesman, I talked myself, I told them, I said, I, you, you will kill me, my kids, but let me get you the money tomorrow. I don't carry that kind of cash. So they left, uh, phoned up an employee. He said, call the police. Within 20 minutes, they were caught. They had my address in the car, fingerprint on my doorbell, you know, dumbasses, right? Yeah, yeah. But that night, I thought, you know, my God, maybe they have friends. Maybe they have, you know, I, this is not safe. So I packed up my children's bags and I sent them to Dubai. And I never went back to that house. My wife and my new wife and my baby boy were in Spain. I drove from north of England to southern Spain in 48 hours. I was like this. Uh, I got there. Uh, I took a few weeks off sabbatical. What the hell's going on? Got back to Manchester. I had a heart attack. And within, <laughs> actually, 2009, and within... How, how old were yeah, you at that point? 44, 43. I'm 44, so there, yeah. Yeah, 43. Wow. And uh, three kids, uh, business, just... I was lying in a hospital bed. I was I had a franchise business in Canada, funny enough. I was flying to Toronto. Yeah. And I phoned up my ex-wife. I said, how are the kids? I said, well, I've got this. I was in the gym. Uh I'm 104 kilos. I was 82 kilos at the time. Yeah. So I'm 20 kilos lighter than I am today. I was semi-professional squash player. And I said to my ex-wife, I said, listen, I've got this cramp in my mouth and I don't think I can fly for eight hours to Toronto. Because whatever you do, go to the hospital. I went to the hospital, put one pound in a meter. And uh, one week later, I had tickets on the car. The car was clamped. Yes. I walked in and they said, you've had a major heart attack. Uh, and I was lying on the bed. And they gave me morphine, which is a great thing. And I was floating on the bed, enjoying myself. And I looked at the ceiling and I, and I couldn't stop crying, Jeff. And it wasn't because I was scared of death. It really wasn't. I was thinking, I just don't want to die alone. Right? And I just made a decision. If I was going to live through this hell, what would I want to do? And I decided I want to be with my kids. And England, it wasn't a place I was happy. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't like the rain. I like the sun. And I visited Dubai before, and my sister lived here. And I, and by that time, my kids had gone to my first wife. So I approached my second wife. I said, look, we, I've, I've decided September 2009, we're going to go to, I don't know why, uh, we're going to go to Dubai. So sold my businesses. I was very honest with the buyers, told them the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they paid me 10% deposit. They didn't pay the 90%. They said, sue us. Because I was so frank and honest, they just fucked me over. Uh, the, whatever I had left, the bank came after me. I was leveraged. The tax man came after me. And I just went, I had four houses in Spain, went to the house clearance, left the keys on the kitchen table and left. Just left. They could be in Spain now because I just thought there was always a hook to take me back to Europe, right? I just thought I had to burn all my bridges and burn all my boats. Um, turned up in Dubai, 2009, with $750 in my pocket. <laughs> That's it. Three kids. But it's it's the power of being an entrepreneur where I always say this to people. If you're a true entrepreneur, money means nothing. You can rebuild money. It's family, family, your health, your well-being are what counts. Nothing else matters. I mean, that's a crazy, crazy story. Often people say, Jeff, like your your well-being. And we always, most people put themselves last. Okay. Not at any time I thought of my well-being until I hit rock bottom and I thought, hang on a second, how many people rely on me? Yes. This self-pity, this all this, I can't entertain it because for six months, my kids didn't go to school. Yeah. Right. Imagine I come home, they're looking at me like, dad, what are you going to do? Yeah. Because I couldn't afford school. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always say everything that, I mean, there's, there's, levels of everything that we do. And and one thing is I always put in my non-negotiables. So every single month in my schedule, I call it the three to seven. So three to 7 PM every single day, that's family time. Phone's off. Everything's locked down. And I've been doing that for 12 years. The odd time you miss because of stuff. Yesterday I was doing construction, but I would say 90% of the time from three to seven, I'm having dinner with my family. We're together. We're for bike rides. We're working out. And that's family time. That's non-negotiable. Every single month, I put that in my schedule. Then everything too is my health. My my, it's like the Oprah filling up your cup first. I put myself above everybody else, above my family, above my business, above everything. Mentally, mm-hmm. spiritually, physically, I take care of myself. I make sure I'm at my highest peak. And you're only once you're at your highest peak, that's only when you be able to serve other people and be able to take care of other people and the people you love and take care of your businesses. So I always make sure I take time for myself. I I even call it almost like a, a daily vacation, even 15, 20 minutes a day, just to read a book, go for a walk, do something for yourself. So you're mentally always at a level and physically to be able to handle and challenge everything. So I, I love that. So critical. You've been in you've been in Dubai ever since. Yeah, uh, makes it 12 years, 12 years, September. And now uh, we have a company of over 100 people. Uh, one of my businesses turned over $700 million last month. <laughs> uh, we have Amazing. a crypto exchange. Um, what else? We have a recruitment company. Uh, five months ago, uh, the real Bradley, I met him. Yeah, and yeah, he kindly, yeah. We were just, my wife and I were in, having dinner. And he walked by and we were on his course. And my wife, cheeky enough, she turned around and said, you've got to interview my husband. And he stopped him and said, well, why? She said, well, he's got a really good story. I said, okay, five o'clock tomorrow. I was like, wow, okay. And then um, I couldn't believe it. I thanked her loads, gave her loads of money, went to center retail therapy. 
and I took the taxi to Brad's um, studio. Yeah. He was kind enough to interview me for about two hours or an hour and a half. Yeah. And we had two and a half million views. Yeah. And we had the highest views on, on most of his posts yeah i've i've had i've had brad on my show i've talked to him quite a few times i know brad so um yeah incredible right i mean he's got a very powerful platform and he's he's good at what he does smart guy very generous he's very generous yeah 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 it's not there's a lot of people look at brad and and think he has this cocky attitude um that he has he's very self-centered he's not he's very generous very he he is about helping people and i honestly it's a a brand it's yeah, a brand. That's probably is the brand. He's one of the kindest people you yeah. could meet. And, you know, um, yeah. So he was generous enough to offer me his time. Yeah. And since then, I haven't looked back. States in the US, that is. And uh, I had, I think at the time, I had 40,000 followers on Instagram. I have yeah. over 200,000 now. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, crazy. Power had, of the power of the influence, huh? It's just, it's really. Insane. And I've had invites to speak on stage. Your good self got in touch with me, you yeah. know. And it's been nonstop. And after this podcast, I have another one. I love it. Uh, yeah, in, in, in California. So just blessed, you know, just blessed. And how all this started about six years ago, somebody contacted me and said, in Dubai, and said, yeah. we've heard your rags to riches, rags to riches again story. And would like you to come and talk on the um, on our event. Would you do that? I said, well, I'm not a professional speaker. She said, oh, just come and speak for an hour. Yeah. And they gave me the dead man slot, which was like five o'clock on a second day of the event. Yeah. Everybody's like tired. They want to go home. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I went in, there was about hundred people or something in the room. When I left three and a half hours later, there were 150 people in the room. Yeah. And people have been dancing, crying, just sharing this, my story. The other speakers were so pissed because I made them stay later, you know, yeah. and they, I, I'm on professional. They said, you know, a professional speaker speaks to that stay in an hour. You've been three and a half hours. I had no clue, but the crowd loved it. They opened up a Facebook page and very quickly I, I got hundred half a million followers and and it just went viral, my story. And I noticed you have Muhammad Ali in the background. I'm gonna I didn't you hear my Muhammad Ali story? No. No, I share that. There's a you. couple. Let's let's touch here that. And uh sure, I want to sure. say one quick thing from a story you said before. Anything. Uh, so how long were you in the fitness industry for? You said 17 years? Yeah, 17 years. I still have clients. So did you actually have physical gyms? Yes. Yeah, Health yeah, clubs. Yeah. Club clubs. Yeah, yeah sports, I love that. Badminton, squash, gyms, crash, yeah. beauty salons, hair salons, everything. Yes. I love that. I mean, from 19 to 24, I ran a consulting company. So I would I would actually deal with big box gyms and, and instill PT programs and help them with their PAPs, pre-authorized payments. And, and I used to, yeah. at 19 years old, I was standing in front of like a thousand people teaching sales for gyms, walkthroughs and all that. And then I ended up uh, building uh, two gyms and selling them both off, building branding and selling them off. So I have, I've been in the gym industry as well. So I, I love that aspect. So there's two stories. Let's, let's talk. Let's, before you get that Ali story, tell me a story about your last name. <laughs> um, my name, my name is Sudi. Okay. Yeah. And obviously my father's in the family died. Yeah. From father and father. I couldn't ask them why is my name an Arabic name? Okay, it's not. It's spelled like in Arabic. It's spelled like Saudi Arabia, but it's yeah. pronounced Sudi, which in turn means that the, the translation means is going up in life, like an aeroplane going up inclination. So, I just thought, God, what a great name to have because I can never go down, right? I've got to live up to my name, so I've yeah. got to keep always going up. 
Well, I don't know where it originated from because I honestly thought it was like maybe my great grandfather's father, whatever, fought in some Arabic war and they gave they were given that name. And anyway, I found my uncle in Austria, my dad's brother. And I said to the kids, I'm going to go and find where he is. I'm going to find out where our name is from. So I found him in Vienna and went and met him. And I said, you know, uncle, just long time no see. Please tell me the story, this romantic story behind our name, because my kids want to know why they have this such great name. And he said, well, your granddad's name was Butcher because his dad had loads of butcher shops and he didn't like it. So he just changed it. I said, that's it? He goes, yeah, it got changed about 60 years ago. And I said, what about a romantic story of this? No, none of that. You, you, you were supposed to be called Butchers. I said, Darius the Butcher. He goes, yeah. So I phoned on my kids. I said, listen, it's not a romantic story, but just thank God you're not called Butchers. <laughs> because in those days, they used to name people after their, you know, what they did. Yeah, you know, like if were, Yeah, so there was no romantic story. I was called the Butcher, Darius the Butcher. But then my granddad changed it because he was he was a mayor of a number of cities those days. And he said, it's not a good name to have. And he just changed it. I love that. I love that. So I think yeah. these are so powerful. My my daughter is named Sierra, which means mountaintop. And uh, my son, um, one day we'll talk about his whole story. But he was um, I was put in a room. They said he had about five, 10 minutes left of life. And I didn't have a name for him. We didn't have a name because he was he was emergency section at 31 weeks. And I had my wife emergency having surgery in one room. I was in a room with my son. They were giving him um, oxygen. And they said he, he probably won't make it more than 10 minutes. Do you have a name for him? I'm not a very religious person. And the first name that came to my head was Tiago. It means God's warrior. And I just wrote that on the birth certificate. Okay. That's how his story started. So my son's name, my name, Tiago, means God's warrior. My daughter, uh, Sierra, which means out the top. I think names are very powerful. And I think a lot of yeah. people, it's beautiful when you put some thought into it, right? Um, yeah. give, me your Ali, give me, give me your Ali story. Jeff, I remember when my first son was born, I was sitting with the father of another child being born. My wife and his wife were next door giving birth. And they called me in. My son was born. I came out and I was like celebrating and I hugged him and he was crying. His, his child died, stillborn, you know, and I just thought, God, you know, in one hospital, two different rooms, one person loses the child, another one gains life. And that's how fragile everything is. There's, so uh, when my son was born, we have, we're very blessed. We have one of the greatest pediatric hospitals in the world, Sick Kids Hospital in yeah. Toronto, Canada. Yes. And when he was born, um, sick kids had no beds. They were full. And they said they had to drive him to a hospital in Hamilton, which is about an hour and a half drive. They said he most likely won't make the drive. And as they were driving to our blessing, to another family's, pain and suffering, a baby passed away and a bed opened up and they were able to do a UE and go to sick kids hospital. So it's, and, and he was put on the fourth floor, which is, um, it's, it's, it's the highest level of the, the IU there. And it was six beds in this room and it was a rotating door where every couple of days, a new baby would die. And he was there for almost four months of his life and he made it through. I'm going to tell you a quick little story. I think this will touch you. Please, me and my wife were there from seven in the morning till seven at night. Every single day, we would just sit there by his bed, sit there. And, and I'm, I'm a very hands-on person. I have to take control of stuff. So I know it's my entrepreneurial side. So he was, he had seven organs that were severely damaged when he was born. And he had sick. His hospital has a department for each organ. 
So they had uh, nephrology for his kidneys. They had they had all these departments, right? So every single morning, all the departments would come together and they would have a round table and figure out what the plan was for the day. And after two days of being there, I had to be involved. So I would sit there at seven in the morning with them and plan the day well with them. And, and I would study everything they would do. I would go home. I would study everything they did at night. And then I would come back the next day. And I, and, and I was so heavily involved. And one thing me and my wife would notice is out of these six baby, other five babies, we would barely ever see another parent. And I would look at my wife and I'm like, why do they never come here? Do they come here after we leave? Do they come here on more on weekends? But we were there on weekends too. We were there seven days a week. And one day I pulled this nurse that was bless her soul. Like she was a big part of my son coming out of that hospital, Marianne. And I said, Marianne, I go, why aren't other parents here? And she says, a lot of parents don't want to build that that personal or that emotional connection to their child because they know they're going to lose them. And they looked at, she looked at me, she goes, your son's coming out of here. Every time I see the story, I want to cry. She goes, your son's coming out of here because you're here. He knows you're here. Love. And, and it's incredible that I would see that these parents would not, they would, they would come for an hour, have a meeting with the doctor and go home and just leave their baby there all day. And um, yeah, I I apologize for jumping that story, but it's just uh, a beautiful story. I remember I remember coming to thank you for that story. Yeah. Honestly, all the hair in my ass. Yeah. I was coming to uh, Dubai, leaving England, and one of my very successful business successful friends phoned up and said, "Look, Darius, I just want to give you one parting advice." And so, what's that? He goes, "You just spoil your kids with too much love. Every word is, I love you, I love you, I love you.'" And I said to him, "You know, I love you, but he could have advised me on anything. But this is the worst advice you could ever give me." And I'm so glad I didn't listen to him because thank you, God, my children are the happiest kids you could meet because they're cups full of love. They're not love buying somebody else's attention, not love buying opportunities. They're cups full. You know, they they always want to come home because they always loved, you know, and who wants to be on this planet if they're not loved, right? What what does fatherhood mean to you? Um. My father, father, just basically, it's the, to have children is the easiest thing in the world, right? Yeah. So it's just the most natural, easiest thing to the world. So fatherhood is not about giving giving birth, right? Or uh, with 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 your partner. Fatherhood is about, for me, is responsibility. To me, yeah. it's about uh, legacy, yeah. and making sure that they are going to be better than me. They're going to be more prepared than me. Um, not motherly cuddle them, not protect them too much, make him weak. Yeah. But make sure this legacy, good values continues. Yeah. Okay. Um, love is everything. Yeah. Love is everything. If I had to do it all over again, I'd say, screw money. I'll sit on a hilltop and I'll hug people all day. Yeah, but unfortunately, bills don't get paid. You can't fly first class, and so. But but I mean, I I always say that is, um, money. You always hear that money can't buy happiness. But I mean, no one that's poor is ever happy, and you have to understand that if you are put in a situation where financially you could help other people and give back, it's it's beautiful being able to do that, right? I mean, during the pandemic, we had some of the most successful times business-wise and a lot of people and i would i would talk about this and we're still going through a pandemic but i mean 2009 19 20 and i was especially 2020 i would tell people how well we're doing 
I started the podcast. I got two number one selling books. I did, and and I would tell people this, and some people would frown on me. And I'm like, but my success is giving other opportunities for people to work. I'm helping, yeah. giving back. So as long as you're willing to use your success for the good, I mean, it's it's incredible. So money, I never say money is a negative thing. I think money is a positive thing. No, use right. If if you're a, if you're a giving person. Yeah. And you're poor, you give your time, you give your love, give your yeah. affection, yeah. give your advice. If money gives you choices, right? And if you're a good person, you make good choices. If you're a bad 100%. person, you make bad, bad choices. That's it. it. Money's energy. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, I, if I could change anything, that's one thing I would never change that love. Love makes everything around. Why do people want to be billionaires? They want to be respected and loved. Yeah. Why do they be politicians? They want to be loved by their bit on the side. They want to be loved by their family. They want to be loved by people. No, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything comes to love. You know, it sounds wimpy and stuff like this. Money, they just want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved, yeah. period. They just put different words around it. Yeah, I love that. Ali, give me your Ali story. When I came here, um, I didn't want to work with people because I associated with pain. By the way, I love Tim Hortons. <laughs> Talk, talk about a franchise that makes money, huh? And 10 kilos of my weight is due to Tim Hortons. Vanilla, vanilla, vanilla. vanilla latte, yeah. Yeah, vanilla latte is there. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, so um, so for I didn't want to work with adults because I felt like they screw you, they cheat you. I just want to work with kids. So I wrote down, like, my goals, my goals in life, and one of them was to have uh, to help children, help orphanages. And now we actually run an orphanage in um, Thailand. My wife runs it with 200 odd children there. I love it. And thank you. And um, yeah, where am I going? But yeah, so I wrote down one I want to come to Dubai. The other one was to uh, help kids. Yeah. Uh, the other one was to meet Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali, the reason is that um, he was my hero. And the only thing I remember of my father and my grandfather was they used to wake me up at like silly o'clock on the lap to watch Ali fights, Ali Frazier, Ali Foreman, and all these people. And that's all I remember of my, my father. So I just followed Muhammad Ali. I remember sending a letter and he sent me a post signed postcard back from the US to Iran. You know, I was just like, he was a Muslim, black man in a white society, anti-war. Yeah. It was just everything that a superhuman being can yeah. be. You know, I'm sure he had his faults. He was a womanizer, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I'm yeah. sure. We all have faults, but to me, he was my hero. So I wrote down, I want to meet Muhammad Ali. So I come over and I did some research and I noticed that he has a center called the Ali Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And all they do is the eight, his eight principles to find the greatness within for children. And I thought, my God, this is great. You know, Dubai is the most amazing city and there must be some empty buildings here. I want to meet the owner of the country, the ruler of the country. I want to pitch him the Ali Center get the Ali Center to Dubai. Muhammad Ali comes to launch it. I get to meet. Everybody's happy. We're going to help the children in Dubai and wonderful. So I met about over, okay. At the same time, I was a single self-employed sales and marketing consultant to Dubai. And I was honestly, Jeff, I was leading to another heart attack. I was doing like seven clients and sorry, 14 clients a week. And I had to deliver two clients a day. It was crazy working seven days a week. And for three years, I kept asking myself, how can I have a business that doesn't rely on me? Because I'll never get rich selling my time. Yeah. yeah, Okay. So I've got these questions asking, 
Now, I've prepared the most amazing presentation about bringing the Ali Center to Dubai. I didn't know anyone in the Muhammad Ali Center. It was just speculative. Yeah. And I met loads of different people, and they all laughed. They all said, it's not going to work. And finally, after three years, I met one of the sons of the ruler. Yeah. And I did him the most amazing presentation. Honestly, it, the, looking back now, the presentation blew my mind, right? Yeah. And then I said, and what do you think? And he went, what a crap idea. You know, nobody's interested in an old boxer. If it was rock climbing, skydiving, yes, but nobody's interested. And I was devastated. I got home and I phoned one of my friends telling him, you know, it was just a bad idea. I'm just going to put this goal in, in, you know, to bed. I'm just going to forget about it. Because you know what? Have you heard of Facebook? I said, yeah, I have a Facebook page. Because why don't you open up a Facebook page? So I said, how do you do that? He came around, we opened up a Facebook page called the Muhammad Ali Center UAE. Yeah. And I wrote a heartfelt letter, exactly what I described to you. My father, grandfather, dreams, yeah. Muhammad Ali's, this, this, this. And I sent it out to my friends. I said, if you, 50 of you follow this link, I will continue chasing my dream. And I went to bed, woke up, I had 1,100 followers. My letter had gone viral. Within two weeks, I had over 40,000 followers. And the government of Egypt, government of India contacted me saying, we want to open Ali centers. Driving along, tel telephone rings, and it's an American voice. Can you be available at 11 o'clock tonight or 9 o'clock this evening? I said, sure. We sat down. I know it was an important call. We sat down, dining room table, phone, phone rings, pick it up. It's Lonnie Ali, Muhammad Ali's wife. Yeah. And Muhammad's heard about your campaign and he wants to meet you. Crazy. In two weeks. And obviously I was struggling financially because we're just barely paying school fees and rent. I borrowed money, took several flights, got to Louisville, Kentucky. By that time I had over 65,000 followers on this page. Yeah. And I was just about to meet my hero. And I thought, hang on a second, since that post, I haven't put that letter, I haven't posted anything to my followers. It's because of them I'm here, not because of me. Yeah. So I took a picture of the menu and the sandwich board pointing to the Ali Center saying, thank you because of you, I'm here. I'm just about to meet Muhammad Ali. And about seven or 8,000 people replied instantly. And I thought, oh, my God, this social media shit really works. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. So I pulled out a napkin and, and I thought, you know, I have about 25 clients who I could probably sign up to manage their social media page. And I'll charge them something stupid like $500 a month. Yeah. Wrote the business plan, came up, and I signed 25 clients in the first month. By the end of the year, I had over 200 or 300 clients. Yes. My wife, my son, myself, we were posting 24-7, you know, and, yeah. and suddenly became a social media company, you know, just because of the Muhammad Ali experience. And the reason that I kept asking, how can I? How can I build a business that doesn't rely on me selling my time? And then people came and said, we love what you're doing. Can you do a website? I took their money, Googled how find a couple of staff yeah. who were terrible. We built some websites, eventually got it right. And then he said, we love your website, but nobody can find it. I went, uh, okay, Google then. I said, okay, you need SEO. So we became, we made it, developed an SEO company. And then the people say, it's taking too long. I said, yeah, it is. Uh, oh yeah, we need Google advertising. Now we're top 3% premier Google partners in Middle East and North Africa. And then I realized that what I teach I teach about recruitment and you only need to recruit motivated people because it's easy to teach them. Yeah. So I, I, I introduced this recruitment process. Now we have a recruitment company. We have a training company because you can get the most re amazing recruit 
uh, motivated staff. But if you don't train them, yeah. they're going to be useless. So we started the training business. So it just developed. Then I realized 60% of our clients were in a hospitality business. And um, they lack consistency. We opened up a hospitality company, which was doing extremely well, uh, building restaurants, menu engineering, until COVID hit. And then that took a big hit. But suddenly we had nine businesses, hundreds of people working for us, all because of the Muhammad Ali experience. So, how, okay, first off, let me finish that story. You met, you met Ali, I'm assuming. No, he never turned up. He never, after all that. He never turned up. And they sent me some guy. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Here's a free ticket to the, to the Ali Center. And here's some goodies to take home. And I later on found out they literally hauled him off to some event in New York for $50,000. It broke my heart. Broke my heart. And half the stuff in the Ali Center was broke. And I wish I'd never seen that part. Yeah. Because it was just like another boxer that was used. Then I realized he sold 80% of his name to a a company, um, yeah. a branding company who yeah. own. Oh, they're making a fortune off his name. Making a fortune. Yeah, Elvis, Michael Jackson, the whole yeah. lot. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it was heartbreaking. But then they needed the money. You know, they took, I think, 60-odd or whatever million dollars. And, but but because of that experience. It opened up other doors. It opened up everything. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I, love, I love your story. I mean there's so many stories that you're saying so many things that we have in common that is great. Like my dad was a huge boxing fan. And I remember as a kid, just sitting down next to him on the couch, just watching boxing, just watching boxing and boxing. You probably watched Hearns, Hagler. Yeah, of course. Sugar Ray Leonard. Yeah. These are the greatest boxes of all time. Of course. Of course. At my home, in my basement, we have, uh, I got Ali, uh, uh, PSA Ali uh, Frazier signed uh, 16 by 20. I got one of uh, Ray and uh, oh, Sugar Ray and uh, oh my God, well, what's his name? Uh, Hispanic guy. Uh, they had those. Uh, they had those epic fights. But long story is that yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm I, I don't you mean, uh, they made a movie on him recently. Duran, uh, Duran, 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 and Ali. Yeah, yeah, Duran and Sugar Ray. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. Exactly. I'm gonna show you something and not yeah. get cut off. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. How long do we have? Uh, about five, ten minutes left. I have one good question for you. Oh, but how? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going to show you something. Hopefully, it'll blow you away. Yeah. You're going to gain a free tour of my office. <laughs> okay. Watch this. I, I love it. All signed by Ali. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I have the the book. Yeah, yeah, I love it. The greatest of all time. I love the showcase there. I love Thank that. you. And also, I, I want to talk to you about this briefly, Gladiators. That's awesome. I don't, know if you know, I don't know if you know, I call all my followers Gladiators because I think as generations go, like you, you mentioned, it, that we've gone soft. Yeah. We have this attitude of the world owes us. Yeah. And I think we live in a very scary times because... As human beings go, 2,000 years ago, if you went to the marketplace as a gladiator to, to fight your way to freedom because you were slaves, yeah. and if you didn't practice or didn't work out enough, you get slaughtered in the marketplace. Yeah. Today, too many people jump in, go to the marketplace, get burned, and they don't give a shit. And they're dying slowly. They're dying slowly. So what I say is be a fucking gladiator. 
Sorry for swearing. I hope you don't no, want to I love swear. it. No, we're all good. To be a fucking gladiator. Dust yourself down. Practice before you go to the marketplace because you're going to get slaughtered. The difference is those days you just get dead. You just die. Yeah. Now you just drip dying. You're dying a day Slowly. at a time. Yeah. Slowly. And that's the worst pain. Yeah. So practice, perfect your art, learn the strategies, plan better, invest time in yourself. Yeah. Right? Be a freaking gladiator and fight your way to freedom. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I have I have one last question for you. Certainly. If something were to happen to you today, how do you want to be remembered described by your loved ones? Uh, the man who I all I want to, them to remember is that thousands of people turned up at my funeral. I went to Iran 15 years back to to say goodbye to my grandma. And then it'd been 40 odd years since my grandfather passed and about 50 people turned up on the fact that they heard I was turning up. OK, and I thought, Jesus, 40 years later, these people are turning up to see me because I'm somebody's grandchild. And I thought, you know what? I want that legacy. legacy. And you said that a few times with your children too. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It is. It, it is important. It's the impact you leave, right? Is how he people remember best. you. How people remember Nobody you. Nobody right? gives a shit about Disney. Nobody gives a shit about Ford. Nobody no. gives a shit about these, you know, uh, Morgan Stanley. All these names that are just badges. Yeah. Yes. But people do remember Martin Luther King. They remember Gandhi, Mother Teresa. All these people yeah. who help millions. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Anything you want to leave our audience with? I'd like to do this again, Jeff. And I, maybe I, I, think, I, think, I think we will. And I, I mean, next time you're in Toronto, I'd love to sit down and have a nice dinner with you and take you out. And show You'll you be your my honor. I mean, maybe do some family. I'd like to do some business with you. Because if you're in the sales business, I've got some sales stuff we can focus on next time. It'll blow you away. Interesting. Blow Interesting. you away. I'm, always, so looking we at, can I'm just, always looking at different opportunities. Let's do that. Let's do events. I'd love to do some events over there. Well, so, Toronto, yeah. Toronto's a great And spot also invite you here and invite you to Dubai. Interesting. So let's do something. Let's take 100%. it from here. Really 100%. enjoyed it. This is if awesome. anybody has any questions, they can connect with me. I don't know if you have a text with my name on it. Yeah. On yeah. My social yeah. Media. So at the, end, at the end of the, um, we do a, a whole parade of, of, we do 19 posts. We do, we have two YouTube videos from this. We're, it's a whole, whole parade we do. Our team does. So, and all the show notes, we're going to put all the links to you, your websites, to your social media, how to get hold of you and all that stuff. So you'll be taking care on that okay. end as well. And uh, I appreciate your time. This has been, I mean, there's so many layers of you, man. We could probably talk for two, three hours here without even trying. We can, and I really uh, enjoyed the vibes. Thank you. I yeah. admit, I'm sorry I talked too much, but no, this, really is, no this is awesome. Thank I love it. I love it. I love you. it. Thank you, brother. God bless you and your Thank family. You. Same okay? with you, brother. Thank you as well. Thank you for your generous time. Thank, Thank you. you. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank our guest, Darius, for taking time. It was an incredibly busy schedule to be a guest on the Jeff Nozine Podcast. If you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I have, like all weeks, tell your friends, tell your family. We're trying to build something special here. Leave a review. Five stars would be incredibly appreciated. We love spending time reading the reviews. Until next week, guys, keep moving forward.